0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now taking up Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 through 23. We're in the middle of Ephesians 1 which is a great chapter for Christians who feel weak, marginalized, demonized, and oppressed, and persecuted, and weak. Because Ephesians chapter 1 is all about our glorious inheritance and the saints, about all kind of good stuff that happens to us because we're predestined in the Lord. And in this particular section, verses 15 through 23, we're going to see a lot about Jesus's power operating for the benefit of the saints. In fact, that's what I'm going to call this section, Jesus exercises power for the benefit of the saints of his church. We start in verse 15 and verses 16. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. For what reason I too, Paul too, doesn't stop praying for the Ephesians? For what reasons? Because, probably because in verse 13, he's mentioned that the Ephesians believed and were sealed in the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, he doesn't stop praying praying for them because they are they belong to Jesus, and so he's praying for them. Now, Paul has heard of the faith which exists among the Ephesians. That sounds like second-hand knowledge, which seems strange because Paul has spent years in Ephesus, and you would think he would know of the faith in the Lord Jesus firsthand, but he heard about it. Here are some options to solve that little problem. First option, Paul is referring to a church that has been greatly enlarged since he had been there. That's the NIV Study Bible Solution. And so many of these new Christians Paul didn't know, so he just heard about it. It had been five years since he had been at Ephesus or so, five years or so. So that makes sense. Option number two, Ephesians was a circular letter. So Paul is referring to all in the region who had come to Christ, knowing that that letter would pass through the region. And it would only be some of those Christians that Paul had firsthand knowledge of, and so he had heard of the, of the rest of them. Option number three Paul had heard of their salvation, but he hadn't heard of their growth in the Lord. That's Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's solution. As, for example, he hadn't heard of their love for all the saints. If we look at verse 15, he says, The faith of the Lord Je- in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you. That sounds like he's talking about the faith of the, the love for all the saints. So that would mean that faith would be a growing, sanctifying faith, not just the faith of justification at salvation time. So however you want to solve that, Paul's influence at Ephesus had expanded either in intensity and depth of the sanctification of the believers he had worked with before or in numbers as there are more and more people at Ephesus and the surrounding churches that had heard the gospel. So Paul had heard all this, and he was excited. He was saying, I'm praying for you guys all the time. I do not cease Paul was always excited about salvation. He saw he never stopped getting excited about it. We go down to Ephesians one verse seventeen. That's the middle of a sentence, so let me go back and pick up verse sixteen. I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention you of in my prayers. Verse seventeen that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So that's how Paul was praying for the Ephesians that they would have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. He mentions that the God of Jesus Christ is the Father of glory. Now, there's two ways to look at that. You could say he is the Father which produces glory, that gives glory. He's the author of glory. The Father is the author of glory, of the glory that we will receive at our death. That's Adam Clark's preferred solution. Or it could just mean he's the Father who is characterized by glory himself, the glorious Father, as then I.V. says. Well, whichever way it is, he's he's going to share his glory with us at the end when we're glorified. And he has glory himself. So whether it's referring to his own glory or the glory he's going to impart, it doesn't matter. Paul says that glory. I'm praying. Well, he doesn't mention the glory directly. He's saying that that the God who is the Father of glory may give to the Philippians a spirit of wisdom. What does it mean, a spirit of wisdom? Well, there's a little difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is knowing a proposition or a person, knowing that they exist. Or knowing the characteristics about the proposition and person. But wisdom is knowing how to deal with the person and propositions. A little bit of difference. Now that knowledge can be two types of knowledge. Revelation in the knowledge of him. Does it mean knowing facts about God? Or facts about Jesus? In other words, is the knowledge, as John Gill puts it, notional and speculative? Or as we would put it, head knowledge? Or, as Gill says, does it rather practical and experimental knowledge? Experiential knowledge of Jesus. God, knowing him personally. Well, it's the latter. So, knowledge can either be intellectual, knowing facts and prepositions about something, or it can be personal knowledge, knowing a person heart to heart. And Paul is praying that the Philippians would know God heart to heart in the knowledge of him and the knowledge of Christ, knowing Jesus personally. Unfortunately, English is ambiguous. Most languages have two different words for the different concepts, intellectual knowledge versus personal knowledge. For, in, for example, in French, savoir is intellectual knowledge and connaître is personal knowledge. In Chinese, jidao is intellectual knowledge and rencha is personal knowledge. But in English, we just have no. Like Adam, knew Eve, that's personal. It means she, he had sexual intercourse with Eve. It's, that's, that's, not, that's experiential. It's not intellectual. And so here, it's personal knowledge of God. We can actually know Jesus as a friend. As a friend. We know him heart to heart. We go to verse 18. Paul continues, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, the eyes of your heart, as a metaphor, it means you can see with your spiritual being, eyes, is what you see with and heart is your spiritual being and that just another way of saying it. understanding your mind your understanding is then every study bible has it actually kgv translates it that way now here's a balance we just said we want to know god personally and experientially of course but it is a false dichotomy to say we know him without intellectual understanding we know him with intellectual understanding also and paul is praying that the philippians would know facts about god as well as to know god personally and I'll tell you, there's nothing worse than false dichotomies when it comes to this issue. you got the pietist on one side saying, oh, no, we just, it's only, its just Jesus. It's just Jesus. Don't give me talk about the Bible. That's just head knowledge. The Bible is head knowledge, really. And then, of course, you've got these seminary hot shots going around talking about their religion gushiki and their hiles gushiki and their bull gushiki. And they talk about how knowledgeable they are about God. Well, those are two extremes we need to avoid. Now Paul says he wants the Philippians to know the hope of his calling. Hope is not a mere wish, a mere a mere wish, but rather wish has quote an objective quality of certainty as the Navi Study Bible puts it. The Navi Study Bible also says that this hope is quote the assurance of eternal life guaranteed by the present possession of the Holy Spirit. So this is a confident hope, not a wish. Romans 8:24. for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is not seen is not hopeful. Who hopes for what he already sees? So in hope is something you can, is in the future that you can't see, but you know you're going to get it. The way I phrase it is it's the confident expectation of something good that's going to happen in the future. Now we're not supposed to worry about the future. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Just like the birds, don't worry about what they're going to eat. On the contrary, we're supposed to hope in the future to have a confident expectation of good things for us. And, of course, all of chapter 1 is about good things. The results of your predestination in Christ, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Having the power of Christ, the power of Christ's resurrection, working in the believer's life. All kinds of good things in chapter 1, which leads to hope, not fear. Now, Paul also prays that, or mentions in his prayer about the hope of our calling. The confident expectation of our calling. Calling is vocation. It's just another word for vocation. It's the state of work which life calls you to. The hope of our calling. What are we called to? Our job, our vocation, is to be called to eternal bliss. Confident expectation of eternal bliss. That's a great job. You get, up and get up in the morning for that. So we're supposed to know about the confident expectation of his calling. Paul prays for that knowledge. And he says, I pray, Philippians, that you will know what are the riches of the glory of Jesus' inheritance and the saints. Now, of course, you could read his inheritance two ways. You can say Jesus' inheritance, Jesus is going to inherit us, the saints themselves. Or you could say the inheritance that God gives the saints. Of course, we're assuming that his there is referring to God the Father, not God the Son. It doesn't matter either way. We have an inheritance that God is going to give to us. We are either his inheritance, God's inheritance, or God has An inheritance to give to us, namely eternal life, confident calling of, and confident expectation of the future. Either way, he wants the Philippians. Paul wants the Philippians to know about that. We go to Ephesians, Ephesians one verses nineteen through twenty-one, and what is the surpass? I want you to know dot dot dot. What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which. He brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, Paul wants the Philippians to know what is the surpassing greatness of of Jesus' power toward us who believe. That power could refer to the power that works in our lives in this life. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown suggested it also could be referring to the power that will raise Christians in the future, just as God's power raised Christ from the dead. That great power that raised Christ from the dead is also going to raise us from the dead. It's a hint there of that. Now in verse 19, Paul says, These, that means the riches of Christ's glory, These riches are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ. So in accordance with means that the power that raised Jesus from the dead also works in believers. Now, folks, how much power did Christ exert when he raised himself from the dead or did God exert when God raised him from the dead? An awful lot. It takes an awful lot of power to raise somebody from the dead. Well, that's the same kind of power that works in us. That power that raised Christ from the dead also seated Jesus at the right hand of God. This is talking about God's power in raising Jesus the strength of his might, the strength of God the Father's might, which he, God the Father, brought about in Christ when he, God the Father, raised him, God the Son, from the dead, and seated Christ at God's right hand in the heavenly places. So substitute for the pronouns there. Now why did God put Jesus at his right hand? Because the right hand, of course, is the symbolic place of highest honor and authority. So once again, we have a reference to power, authority. Jesus is there at the right hand. We're seated with him at the right hand. And so why are we worried about the fact that that morons are running the United States government. Why do we worry about such things? Now, Jesus is at the in the heavenly places at God's right hand. Heavenly places. Let's refer back to verse 3 in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So we're in heavenly places, situationally. We're in heavenly places, and we're in Christ. So Jesus is in the right hand of God, the Father in heaven. We're in Christ. And so we're there, too, spiritually speaking, And so we don't need to worry too much about what's going on down here. So heavenly places is a very exalted way of saying that our blessings are in Christ or in union with Christ. Because we're in union with Christ, all of which is his is ours. All rule and authority. All power over rule and authority and power and dominion, which of course is just a fancy way of saying demons. Far above all demonic forces. And every name that is named, every earthly ruler and every person on earth who has authority, we're above all that. Because heaven is above all that. And that's where we are. Now we're seated far above everything. Every name that is named. Not only in this age but also in the one to come. Now what is the difference between this age and the one to come? A lot of times this age means the Jewish age and the one to come means the age at the end of the Jewish age after the cross. But here it means the consummated kingdom of God at the end of time. Obviously because he says not only in this age. Well this age that he was talking about was in the 60s when paul wrote the letter to the age to go well the age to come could actually refer to to the age after the after 80 70 because he wrote in the 60s so i'll take that back could mean that or it could mean the far end of time consummated god at, kingdom of god at the end of time i think it's a little bit ambiguous here let me look at let's look at some examples where the age to come can refer to the church age not the final state hebrews 926 26a he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Well, there, obviously, end of the ages is talking about the church age because that's when the sacrifice for sins was done. End of the ages, end of the Old Testament Jewish age. First Corinthians 10, 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Well, our instruction, the Corinthians' instructions, had the end of the ages come upon them. That means they were living in the new age. So, and the ages the old age which has which it had already come was the old testament era so you see that phrase the end of the age can easily refer to the end of the old covenant age it's clear in those two verses i cited in hebrews 9:26 and 1st corinthians 10:11 it's ambiguous here in our passage in ephesians 1 verse 21 but i do suggest to you that it doesn't necessarily mean the end of the world although it might ephesians one twenty-two through 23 and he that's God, put all things in subjection under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him, gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his, Jesus' body, the fullness of Jesus who fills all in all. Now, Jesus is the head of all creation. He's the head of the church. He's the head of everything. Let's look at some scriptures that show this. Psalms 8, verses 5 through 6. Yet you have made, yet you, God, have made him, Jesus, a little lower than God, or actually not Jesus, made him mankind. You have made man, and yet you, God, have made man a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. But if man has been given rule over the earth and dominion over the earth, who's the head of mankind, Jesus? He's the head of the new redeemed humanity, especially. We go to Hebrews 2, 6, verse verse 6 through 8a, but one is testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him he left nothing that is not subject to him. Well there the author of Hebrews took the psalm, Psalm 8 verses 5 through 6, and made it Refer to Jesus being over all Jesus over all, and he's and the idea that he's made just a little lower than the angels means in his incarnate state, of course, not that he was a created God, and so Jesus is now over all the works of God's hands hebrews ten thirteen says this waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, so waiting for the time until Jesus is head over all in history as he is in in actuality. Now, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-seven. for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Ephesians 1, 10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. Jesus is the focal, central aspect of all creation. He is head over all creation. He's head over the body. He's head over all things, and he's head over the church. The church is his body. That's mentioned a lot in Ephesians. The idea of the church is the body of Christ. Ephesians 2.16, and might reconcile them both in one body to God. That means the Jews and the Gentiles are in one body. Ephesians 4.4, 4, there is one body and one spirit. The church is one body and one spirit. Ephesians 4.12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies According to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The body actually builds up the body through the mutual ministration of the gifts. Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being savior of the body of the church. Now, if Jesus is the head of the body, that means when Jesus is raised, the body is raised because heads don't operate without bodies. And so that means if Jesus is the head of all creation, then he's the church is the head of all creation too. And, of course, Jesus is the head of the church. Here's another scripture talking about Jesus being the head of the body. Colossians one eighteen. he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So the head reigns. We reign with him because we're the body. Now Paul says in verse 23 in Ephesians 1 that The body, the church, is the fullness of Jesus, which is his body, the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What does it mean, the fullness of him who fills all in all? Well, the body of Christ, the church, completes Christ. We're the fullness of him. We make him complete. A human head is not complete without a body. Jesus is not complete without his body, the church. Now, we've got to be careful how far we take that analogy, because Jesus actually could exist without a body, A human head couldn't exist without a body, but Jesus could, so we can't press the metaphor too far. But nonetheless, the Father chose for Jesus to have a body. What an incredible honor that is for us, because when Jesus rules, we rule with him. Now, this body, excuse me, Jesus fills all in all. What does it mean to fill all in all? Here's some options. Option one, Christ fills the church with every spiritual blessing. John 1 16 says this, for of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. The fullness of Christ, we've all received that. Everything he's got, every spiritual blessing is for us. Colossians 2, 9 through 10, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's completely God because he has the fullness of de- deity. And in him you have been made complete. Everything we have we need, complete, mature, perfect. In Christ, in union with Christ, we've got everything we need. Well, that's the first option. Christ fills the church with every spiritual blessing. Who fills all in all, fills, Jesus fills the church. Or, option two, it could be Jesus filling the, filling the world with his authority. If we look at verse 22, that sort of supports that idea. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So if he's head over all things, that means he has authority over all things, so therefore he fills the world with his authority. That's option number two. Option number three, Jesus fills all in all because he fills all of the creation with whatever creation possesses. Every good thing that the natural world creates or natural or human world has. Then Jesus has filled that creation with those good things. As This is Jameson Fawcett and Brown's solution. I like option one, Christ fills the church with every spiritual blessing and in him we have been made complete. Ladies and gentlemen, on that very exalted spiritual note we are now finished with ephesians chapter one verses 16 or 15 through 23 in our next audio we will look at ephesians chapter two verses one through ten the theme of which is salvation by grace through faith that extremely important and well-known passage that tells us of our salvation by grace through faith so we'll take that up in our next audio see you next time